0: First Peter, let's, uh, let's pray. In fact, I'll read the, first, the next few verses. We're reading from verse 10. We'll read those verses, then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll study. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we we study your word this morning, Lord, that this glorious passage would be made alive to us, that... Your Holy Spirit, who inspired it, would illuminate it before us today, that despite me and, and my failings, Lord, that you would work this day through your glorious word. May you show yourself to be mighty, show yourself to be magnificent, and to be gracious in the opening of your word this day, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Concerning this salvation. So as we come to verse 10, we are going to have to make sure that we understand that what he is talking about is concerning the salvation that he's been speaking of. A lot of people miss the point in the following sentence and the following words because uh, they uh, they don't t- pay attention to this. They don't understand that it's specifically about the salvation. And that's what we're going to focus on. For way of context, <clears throat> let us look back that this salvation has been spoken of in the previous verses. He, uh, if you recall, starting from verse 3, "...Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and according to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." And so right from the beginning, being born again in Peter's mind has its focus, in this context, has its focus on what is still to come. We so often, um, I think heavily influenced by Paul in Romans 3 and 4, we so often as Christians, we talk of salvation almost 90% of the time in a past tense. We have been saved. God has saved us. And this is a glorious truth, no doubt. But it really is only part of the picture. Maybe we should go beyond Romans 4 and get to Romans 7 and 8 and, and, and focus on that a little bit more as well. Because Peter is reminding us just how important it is for us to see the salvation that is to come. And he speaks of this living hope that has been accomplished through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We have... Remember that hope is not something that is, uh, you know, we're hoping for it to happen. It's a possibility. Hope in the biblical term is an assurance. It is something that is guaranteed to happen. And we have a hope that is alive, living and breathing. And this hope... Um, is to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, we have a hope, we have an inheritance, and this inheritance is being guarded by Christ and kept in heaven so that this salvation, not the salvation you have been saved, but our salvation in the fullest sense. Salvation in the sense of us overcoming sin, being without sin, being having glorified bodies in the sense of, of the redemption, the redemptive work of Christ being complete, that all of that is being guarded, and that salvation is going to be revealed to us in the last time. And then when we came to verse 6, <coughs> pardon me, when we came to verse 6, it, the, the importance of this, <clears throat> this end time focus, this, this future salvation, the importance of it becomes really clear when he says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This strike me in verse 6 just how powerful that word grieve is. Trials are not just, oh yeah, I'm suffering, you know. There's a real grieving that happens in the trials of life. And, and uh, you know, just as we whiz through this for context, I really want us, just as we get this overview idea of it, we look at it um, from above, as it were, just this reminder that here are these people who are suffering, have suffering on the horizon, that are grieving, are going to be grieving all these trials that will come upon them, that for many of them will be way beyond any trials that we'll ever suffer. And yet, Peter just keeps pointing to the future. To the future, to the future. And I know that when I go through trials, my focus is on now. (laughs) I'm hurting now. I have a problem now. Can you deal with the the now God? And Peter just keeps pointing them. Hope, inheritance, salvation. He just keeps pointing them away and away. Because though they're suffering now, they're now, they're, they're going through trials now, it's happening for a reason. And the reason of verse 7 is that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the trials that we go through now are working on purifying our faith, proving our faith and purifying our faith, so that in the end Christ is glorified. You see how he does that? Me, 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 now, 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 pain, pain, pain. And he says, "It's for Christ, and look to the future. Look to, look to how Christ is going to be glorified through your trials." And, and so um, there will be praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and this is where we were last week, though you do not, uh, you do not see him, uh, do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And we, we talked a lot last time about that, and I won't go back to it now, but look at the conclusion as he wraps it up. He says that what is happening now is that we're rejoicing and we're filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is where everything is heading. So verses 3, um, three through 9 are really consistently pointing to the future. Hope, inheritance and then salvation, and then salvation again in verse 9. He is continually pointing to this is the outcome, this is the end, this is the end goal, is the complete salvation of our souls. That we would have that redemptive work complete in us. Okay? Concerning this salvation. So that's all your context and that's the salvation we're talking about. So we are not talking about salvation in the sense of you have been saved past tense, not not solely. We're talking about salvation as a complete package. We're talking about salvation from, from God choosing us, right the way through to him calling us, right the way through to him justifying us, right the way through to him presently sanctifying us, and though we grieving through trials, and right the way through to him glorifying us and completing that work of salvation. That's the salvation that is being spoken about in verse 10. So that's a nice summary for those who haven't been with us, and that leads us into the context nicely of verse 10. Now, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully. Okay, so here's a little bit of a shift. He moves now, he's been talking about the salvation, he says about now. now this salvation that we've been talking about, verses 3 through 9, this salvation about this, he says... The prophets who did the work of prophesying. So when we have the history of the prophets, he says, they prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Now next time, when we finish off these few verses and we finish off this section, we're going to come back and look a little bit more about how it impacts us in this way. But the grace that is going to be ours is something that they prophesied. Now, we need to understand and read this in its context, which is the new covenant. Okay? Don't, uh, on the one hand, we mustn't shortchange the Old Testament saints, and on the other hand, we mustn't over big up what, the, what life was like for them either. Okay, there's a there's a balance to be struck here, and the church we we woefully fail in this area, and we tend to go in one direction or the other. You know, sometimes we we um, I know particularly in worship uh, songs there's this, there's this oh Lord we come into your presence and all of this and this. No, you don't. You woke up in his presence. You are his presence. You are the temple of God. And we have this old covenant mentality that we so often bring into worship. I think it's because we rely on the Psalms, which were written in an old te- te- uh, old covenant context, but But we need to be careful not to give to the Old Testament saints something that wasn't true for them. But at the the same time, we need to also recognize that, that it's nonsense to suggest that being born again is something that only started in the New Testament. When Nicodemus was told, you must be born again, he wasn't like, what is this strange phrase? I have never heard this before. Rather, he was just confused at how having been born again multiple different times Because the Jews talked about you being born again when you were married. They talked about you being born again when you became a rabbi and and other various things. And he's like, I've run out of ways to be born again. So what on earth are you talking about? That was the confusion. And in fact, though we use the term born again, the concept was communicated in the old covenant with more commonly with another expression, which was the circumcision of the heart. Be careful, the Israelites were warned, that though you were circumcised in the flesh and that you were nominally connected to the covenant, that you are not saved because you haven't also been circumcised, set apart in your heart. And that really was the Old Testament equivalent of being born again. So they were saved if they had faith. And yet at the same time, they didn't have the new covenant blessings that we have. Now, I say all of this because we need to understand the word grace in that context. He's saying here, they prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. So they're not talking about grace, and again, this is why I'm careful with my terminology here, in the same way that we, we tend to make salvation a past tense thing, we, we equally look at the word grace, and we look at the word grace as being something that, that has been given and that has been accomplished. Again, past tense. But he's saying, no, 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 look, there is something that the prophets prophesied that you now have, but at the time, it was, a prophecy. it was prophesying. They didn't have it. It wasn't something that was for then. It was something that was for now. So there is a grace that God has given that they didn't have before. Last time, when we spoke at length about the expression, though you have not seen him, we spent a lot of time um, in John's Gospel. If you remember, we went from Exodus 33, 34... And the revelation of God's glory to that being, that being referenced in Exodus, uh, in John chapter one, rather. And then after John chapter one, you have not, no one has seen God. We have that being taken through to John 20. And if you want to, that was, I thought it was quite a good one last time. You can go back if you missed that and have a look at that. But I want to just, you don't need to turn there with me. I'm going to be brief. But back in John chapter one, in that whole section, which is contextually linked with this part of first Peter. Um, when we were talking about the word becoming flesh and and tabernacling amongst us and we've seen his glory full of grace and truth it then says and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace I, I, I really don't like the translation upon the word here in the Greek it's most normal translation which fits perfectly here I don't think it should be translated any other way is in place of grace in place of grace you had grace through Moses, but now that grace has been replaced by grace that comes from Jesus Christ. A fuller grace, a more complete grace, the end goal of grace. And that is what's being referred to in First Peter. He's saying they were prophesying not about the grace that was common to Old Testament saints, not about the grace that came through Moses, which was a grace and that they did have, and that they were saved, and that they were saved by faith. But rather, it's about the grace that comes as part of the new covenant, the grace that comes as part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace that comes that replaced the grace that came with Moses. That's the grace that's being spoken of. We're getting there, slowly. So, the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, okay? So, we're concerning this salvation, so he's talking about this salvation that is ours, this new covenant salvation, and he says, this was prophesied... This, this salvation, this new covenant one, this grace that's unique to you in the New Testament, he says this was prophesied by the prophets, and then now we can have a little detour. Okay? The prophets, um, they searched and inquired carefully. Listen, I, I've mentioned this a few times before, but I know I, I'm not going to tire of saying it, so I'll say it again. Um, one of, one of the most amazing things to me as, uh, as a pastor, one of, the, one of the privileges that I have, is teaching the word when I've already taught it. Teaching a book I've already taught. And I've, I've told this a few times before, but I remember uh, being at a, a Bible college that really wasn't much of a Bible college in any sense, to be fair. But... Um, And there was a guy there who was a former pastor. I think sometimes old pastors who who are kind of farmed out to retirement often would go through this Bible college on the way through. And and he was asked to teach a particular class. I think it was Revelation. And I said, oh, okay, so Revelation, what what are you using to kind of get yourself ready for Revelation class? And he literally was going to his filing cabinet and pulling out his Revelation notes that he'd done however many decades previously. I just shook my head at that. I could not understand that. To me, one of the great joys is saying, okay... I, I know this book. I've done it before. Let's forget all of that. Let's look at it with fresh eyes. Let's see where we are. And, and guys, we are on a journey, every one of us. I don't care if you've been a Christian for, for longer than I've been alive. You are still have a responsibility to learn and grow. And, and, and one of the things that, for me, has revolutionized my thinking of the, of the Scriptures, my teaching of the Scriptures, in just the last few years just in the last four or five years, has been this this revelation of how, how much the writers of Scripture were students of Scripture. You know, when I was a baby Christian, when I was young in my faith, when I read the Bible, I was under the impression that here is, say, Peter, for example. He's in front of us. Peter's writing this letter. And it's inspired by God. I got that from day one, and I, I never struggled. I that, understood that. Okay, so it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Everything that Peter writes is God speaking to us, right? So I had this idea that that there is Peter writing it down, and God's there, going, "No, no." salvation, salvation, write that down. And and he's writing it down, you know, that God's kind of whispering in his ear, the the, the dictation theory, as it's called. And, And very quickly in my faith, I came to realize it wasn't quite like that. That in the same way that the living word, Jesus Christ, is both fully man and fully God, so the written word is fully man and fully God. That Peter wrote, in his way, because he 's peter that 's his experience, his background, all, all that is Peter is, is put, and obviously those who are assisting him in this are, are, are putting in, put into that it 's fully human, but yet it 's fully divine that god 's not there telling him every word to write down, but he 's guiding the ship, and he 's preventing any error from creeping in but you see the thing that has really struck me now recently is this understanding that Even though I got to the point where I realized it wasn't being dictated to them, I still had this idea that somehow everything that Peter was writing was revealed to him by God. In the sense of, you know, it was like, wow, you know, he had some sort of vision or, you know, that God supernaturally enabled him to understand it. I'm now coming to the understanding of just how much sweat there is in the scriptures. We've been going through Isaiah now for over a year in the evenings. And going through the early chapters of Isaiah was like, Oh, there's Romans. Oh, there's Romans. Oh, there's Romans. And it was like, hold on a second, Paul. I know where you got this from. (laughs) It was was kind of like almost discovering a student's been plagiarizing. It's like, you've been reading Isaiah, Paul. Paul. And and as, as I've gone down this journey more and more, I'm just realizing just to what extent, I mean I knew it always happened, but just to what extent the writers of scripture were students of scripture. And I, and I honestly think I'll probably go further down this road and be blown away more, more and more. In the, I think that the times in which, like Isaiah says, I'm, I'm there and I have this vision and I'm seeing the temple of God and I'm seeing the throne of God. And, and there are those moments of revelation. There's Paul on the Damascus Road. There's those moments of revelation. But what happened after Paul got saved on the Damascus Road? See, Paul's there on the Damascus Road. And he sees this vision of Christ high and lifted up. And by the way, without getting into it, we dealt with it many months ago, I I do believe that what Paul saw was exactly the same as what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. And he's realized, that one, high and lifted, that's Jesus! And just this life-changing moment. And Paul knew the scriptures so well, and yet he has to completely rethink everything that he's... All the conclusions he's come to. Because he knew the scriptures. I mean, he would have memorized entire books of the Bible. He knew it like the back of his hand. And yet he was killing Christians. <laughs> it's just bizarre. And then God just gives him this moment of revelation. He opens his eyes. And, 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 and suddenly Paul gets it. Now that isn't amazing. But what amazes and interests me far more is the years that Paul spent in Arabia studying the scriptures retrospectively. Where did I go wrong? What did I miss? How does it all fit together? That, that, as much as the moment on the road to Damascus, was what led to the epistles and all the writings of Paul and all the glories that Paul, all the the glories of the gospel that he expressed to us. That, to me, is amazing. So, when I'm looking at this text, and I'm now looking at this with fresh eyes, I'm saying... The the prophets searched and they inquired carefully. There is in these terms there is a sense of there is a sense of the sweat of the prophets. I, w- I want to read to you briefly um, from from Daniel nine. Because if you haven't seen this, this will help illustrate it quite well. In the first year of Darius, this is uh, Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Ahazurus, a descent, uh, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years, according to the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Hey, Daniel! How many years are there going to be before this exile comes to an end? Daniel says 70. I knew you'd know you're a prophet. Did God tell you? He said, no, i just reading Jeremiah. I, I was studying Jeremiah and I, and I realized what, was in, what, what he was saying. This is only going to be for, for 70 years. Did you get that? To me, that was mind-blowing years ago when I, when I was first coming across that. That here's a prophet, and that, that God isn't just giving everything to directly. He knew what was going to happen because he was studying Jeremiah. And when you read the, the, the writers of Scripture more and more, and, and again, I, I keep saying this, but we don't know our Old Testaments well enough. That's why so many of you are going to be in Isaiah this evening at 6 p.m. But we don't know our Old Testaments well enough and so what happens is we miss all of these connections. I always try and show them to you as best I can. But we miss these connections and we don't see that the New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old far more than we realize. And so the prophets, they are, they are, they are inquiring, um, they are searching, and, and they are, they are uh, trying to find out. There is a sweat. There is, yes, there's revelation. Yes, there is revelation, but there's sweat as well. As Christians, you would never, if you want to play the piano in worship, unless you're a really, really raving lunatic, kind of extreme charismaniac, you're not going to sit in front of the piano and say, God, by your Holy Spirit, Rachmaninoff's third, without a single lesson. You're not going to do that. I don't think anyone's going to expect that. But does that not, does not that mentality creep into our Bible studies? That we think that somehow we're just going to open our word and boom. The only reason that you open your Bible and you just get boom, boom, boom is because you haven't opened it much before. So all the easy stuff is going, whoa, you're going, that's amazing. You know, if you want to play Rachmaninoff's third, bearing in mind that it's, it's driven a few people mad, trying to, then you're going to have lots of lessons. You're going to practice again and again, day after day, year after year. Let's make no bones about this. If you want to serve Jesus Christ, you need to know your Bible. And if you want to know your Bible, you have to sweat. There isn't a sacrifice. There is, there, there is no glory without sacrifice in this realm. You know? As Christians, we're like those, those, those people who enter a marathon on a whim and turn up on the day having done nothing. I love watching them at about mile 20. Very entertaining. And you know what? We've just seen from Peter that there are trials of life and they're tough and you need to be ready and so you've got to put the work in. And you have to sweat, and you have to work, and you have to make sacrifices, and we have to know our Bibles, and we have to let that word dwell in us richly, so that we are equipped to deal with the trials of life. So anyway, that's my little bit about prophets sweating. And then it gets even more fascinating, because they're there, and they're inquiring... What person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating? So we go from the sweat to the revelation. There is an, there is an indicating that goes on by the Spirit of Christ. I'm going to talk about that phrase in a moment. But there's this, there is this, this, this revelation side of it in which the, 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 the Spirit is indicating something to them and then there's sweating that goes along with that. So having just talked to you about, hey, don't rely on revelation, don't rely on just some miracle, you've got to sweat this out. At the same time, as we sweat it out, we're we're doing it on the basis of God's revelation, God opening our eyes. You can sweat through the scriptures as much as you like, for as long as you like, and you can still be unsaved, unless God opens your eyes. Paul's time in, in Arabia would have been worthless without the road to Damascus. You need both. You have to. There's a wonderful story I heard before about um, a a, a seminary teacher at a a very theologically liberal seminary who was expounding on what Paul was teaching through uh, Romans. And just summarizing, you know, he's saying this and this and this and this. And and he's expounding on the gospel. And and one of the students there who's, who's a Christian knows that this professor is incredibly theologically liberal and doesn't believe any of this. And he says, Professor, I didn't know you believed this. And he said, who said anything about believing it? He knew it really well. He'd studied it. He'd seen it. He just didn't agree with Paul. And that's shocking. You know, a lot of times seminary is a wonderful thing, and other times it's a place where faiths go to die. You know, you can study and sweat without that revelation, without God opening your eyes, and it can simply be a building of pride, It can simply be a barrier to God working. So what's the answer? What's the solution? The answer is is that we sweat because we know we need to. And we do it on our knees. Because we need his mercy. And we need him to protect us from ourselves. See? Both sides of it. Nice balance there within the text. Um, Notice who is indicating to them. I love this expression. The spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ. Isn't that an interesting statement? The Holy Spirit here, which we know it is because of the, 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 the parallel reference to the Holy Spirit in uh, verse 12. Um, the, the Holy Spirit here is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. Now, I, I read an explanation of that this week, which I thought was really, really helpful. Um, I, I've said this to you so many times, that you have, in the Old Testament, you have Yahweh. Yep, Yahweh, this is God, this is the God of heaven and earth, this is the God above all God, king above all kings, this is his name, his name is Yahweh, I am that I am, yes? Yahweh is God, and yet throughout the Old Testament, there is another who is Yahweh, and yet who is not Yahweh. He He is the angel of the Lord, he is the word of God. And the Jews who, this is way before the New Testament came along, way before the time of Christ, the Jews understood that there was someone who was Yahweh and yet who wasn't. Who was, who was Yahweh and yet was distinct from Yahweh. And when when this one would manifest, when Yahweh would manifest in human flesh, it would be this angel of the Lord, this word of Yahweh. When when John writes in the beginning was the word, he's not just coming up with some clever name for Jesus. This This is built on a rich history of Old Testament understanding and commentaries on Old Testament by Jewish rabbis for centuries. And he says, yeah, you're right, there is one who is the word of God, who did the work of creation, who is Yahweh and yet who is distinct from Yahweh and so you have as we would say in Trinitarian terms you have the father and you have the son and you have them being, uh, being distinct and yet being one right? That's Old Testament theology. That's not a New Testament thing much at all. It really, when you see, Of course, you see it in the New Testament, but as I've already said, that's the prophets searching diligently and studying their Old Testament. But what we see far more in the New Testament is we see the same thing being done with Jesus and the Spirit. And it's only when you get It's only when you get that that's what the Old Testament has done with Father and Son that you see, ah, that's what you're doing in the New Testament with the Son and the Spirit. Really good example of that. We dealt with it when we went through it, but let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Never need a good excuse to go into Ephesians, do I? love Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. So Ephesians 4, Paul has three chapters of telling us what God has done for us, and then he launches into then how we should live as a result in chapter 4, which, by the way, is the same structure that Peter has. He's doing that in the first 12 verses of chapter 1. When we hit chapter 13 in two weeks' time, then we will be jumping into how we respond to these glorious truths that we've been studying these recent weeks. Anyway, chapter 4, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace there you go, that's a description of a Christian hey are you a Christian? you say to someone why do you think that? well it's because you're full of gentleness and humility and patience so surely you're a Christian that's what should distinguish us not a fish on your bumper sticker just just saying and then he says there is one body one spirit just to your call to the one hope that belongs to your call one Lord one faith one baptism one God Father of all who is over all and through all and in all and then we have this astonishing unity of the faith one 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 all 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 there is un- unity because we have the same gospel the same God the same uh, with the same body the same church we have the same Holy Spirit but there's your contrast verse 7 grace was given to each one of us According to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay. So, we are given grace. We, we are all united. We all have the same Holy Spirit, right? That's, that's centuries of Pentecostal history and theology wiped out in one verse by Paul. We, we have the same Holy Spirit, and that's what unites us and not, does not distinguish us. But, the contrast is that the grace that God's given to us is distinct, and it is different Because it's been given in different measures according to Christ's gift. So Christ has graced us. He's gifted us. Okay? And he has given to us, and that's our distinction. We have the same Spirit, but we have different gifts, and that's what this section is going on to. Okay? So as I've said to you many times before, it's always worth a reminder, the unity of the faith is that we have the same Holy Spirit, so our similarity unites us, but equally the Spirit manifests himself through different giftings given to us. We all have different gifts. And therefore, our unity is created by our dissimilarity. I need you, and you need me, and we all need each other. None of us have all the gifts, and all of us have at least one gift. So we all have this interdependency that comes from our differences, and our unity works through that, even though it's founded on us having the same Holy Spirit. It's a quick summary of of that section of Ephesians 4. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And we're going to leave that psalm reference for now. But then in verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended to the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And then he gave to the apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, work of ministry. And it talks about the giving of the gifts. Now look, there have been many, many different understandings of this verse about ascending and descending. Okay? The he in context is clearly Christ. So Christ ascends and then he descends. Okay? The problem that we have in this text is this. Well, there are several problems in the text. Some people have, have translated it to mean that he descended, meaning he descended below the earth, which potentially the Greek could mean that he descends below the earth, and it means the descent of Christ to hell after, uh, after he's died. I don't think it refers to that. The ESV here more naturally translates it, a descent of Christ to earth, which I think is how we should understand it. And therefore, many people have interpreted that to mean the incarnation. That he descends to earth at the incarnation. But the descent happens before the ascent, if you're talking about an incarnation. He descends at the incarnation, right? And then he ascends afterwards. But here it's talking about Um, What does it mean Uh, he ascended, but he also descended? He descended is also the one who ascended. And I think that what we have here in the context is we have him descending to give gifts. The context is Christ giving gifts. In other words, Christ descends to give the gifts for ministry. Who descended to give the gifts for ministry? Who descended, who came down to the church to empower the church for the gifts of ministry? That was the Holy Spirit. And yet here, it's referred to as Christ. Who was it? Was it Christ who descended? Or was it the Holy Spirit who descended? Who was it who created the heavens and the earth? Was it the Father or the Son? Do you see? It's the same thing. It's the same thing going on. Because when the Spirit descends, Christ has descended, because that's Christ's Spirit that has descended. The Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Which is why we who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, Paul says Christ is in you. How is Christ in us? Because the Holy Spirit's in us. Well, hold on a second. Who's in us? The Holy Spirit or Christ? Yes. You see, it's an incredible thing when you get it. That throughout the Old Testament, there is God and there is one God. And yet there is another who is distinct from him and yet who is him. And that's the Father and the Son. And it's an Old Testament concept. I keep saying that. Then we come to the New Testament, and there is, now we know, we have this full revelation of who this other one is. The Word of God, the the God incarnate. It is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And and now, there's the Spirit of God, who was there in the Old Testament as well. But now, there is this same thing going on, where the Spirit is is distinct from Christ, and yet the Spirit is Christ. There is this this, this distinction, and, and, and this connection. Just like there was with the Father and the Son. That is why we have a Trinitarian belief. It's not because there is a verse that says, hey, look, Trinity. It's because there is this very long story that's being told through generation after generation after generation where God progressively reveals himself. I love that progressive revelation. It's like, who's that guy with the big hair who did the paintings? Bob someone? Bob Ross, there you go. It was Rolf, Rolf Harris in England. He was Australian. He used to say, Can you see what it is yet? But we can't mention him because he, he got done for some crimes he shouldn't have done anyway. I'm not gonna get into that. But um, but you know, these, these children's arts, they paint something and you're like, oh, I can't see, what is it? What is it? You know, and it, it's like a it's a splash and it's a dot and it's a dash. And then by the time they're finished, you go, Wow, isn't that lovely? And that's progressive revelation. It's God saying, Here's a little bit. Here's a little bit. And so all these New Testament writers, they have this wealth of revelation and they're sweating and studying it and they know it and then they're adding a few dots and a few dashes and a few squiggles to make the picture ever more glorious. And right here we see that in that we have this revelation of the deity of the Holy Spirit in that he is the Spirit of Christ. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Christ is in you. How is Christ in you? Because the Holy Spirit is in you. And you don't don't listen to anybody who says, oh, maybe your problem is you don't have the Holy Spirit. No, your problem is you don't read the Bible. You have the Holy Spirit. He is in you if you are a Christian because we have the spirit of christ now this then leads us to this fascinating whole thing and this is why i knew i wouldn't get through uh, all three verses today this, this this whole fascinating concept in that you're saying okay anthony here we are in the new testament we're new covenant believers right and we have the spirit of god in us yes fantastic that's new right that's new It didn't happen in the old covenant. The Spirit of God was with them, but He wasn't in them. That's what Jesus said to the uh, disciples in John. He says, He says, the Spirit of God is now with you, but He will be in you. There's going to be a shift. Jesus was the temple of God. The word became flesh and He tabernacled amongst us. Jesus became the temple. Jesus walks into the temple and He throws everything around. They say, What authority do you do this? He says, Destroy this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. God used to dwell in the temple. And then in the book of Ezekiel, He leaves. And then Jesus now is the temple, the dwelling place of God. And so once again, the Israelites had God with them. He says to the disciples, he is with you, but he will be in you. As I am a temple, you are going to become temples, which obviously Paul then says we are. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? We have become the temples, right? So this is a new covenant thing. But here it says this. That it was the prophets who had... The Spirit of Christ in them. Now, if that surprises you, you need to go back and listen to my series on the history of the Holy Spirit, which I think is on the church website. But what basically happened is that the prophets were these uh, were these uh, isolated examples of New Covenant faith. Moses is there saying, I just don't get it, God. You know why these Israelites are so hard-hearted, they don't do what I say, they're just a mess. And it's like, well, Moses had the Spirit of God in him, but they didn't have the Spirit of God in them. And so the Spirit of God did indwell people in the Old Testament, but very few. Prophets were always indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Not necessarily permanently, but kings and judges on occasion as well, but God would have these people who had the Holy Spirit and he indwelt them. And there were some like Moses and Joshua and David that we seem to see the Spirit of God throughout their ministry indwelling them and remaining with them. And then we have Saul, who had the Spirit of God within him and then lost him. Which is why David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me when he's been caught in sin. He knew it was a possibility. But Ephesians 1, we now know that the Spirit's been given as a guarantee of God's work in us. That's never, it's never going to stop. It's never going to come to an end. There's no danger of the Spirit leaving us. That's, that's permanent. So in the old covenant, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit to indwell a person was very limited and potentially not permanent. That's why it's so exciting when the Joel prophesies that the day will come when God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. Even servant girls will be prophesying. No matter how low down you were in the strata of society, it wouldn't just be the prophets and kings that would have the spirit of God, but that all of Israel would have the spirit of God at the time of the new covenant. That's what was prophesied. That's really exciting. And now... We live in this time of grace with this salvation that they had. And I think the amazing connection here in this text is that those prophets, what they had to do their work of prophesying, is what we all have. That's kind of where I've been coming to, heading on this journey in the text. That they had the Spirit of Christ in them that enabled them to see things, and then with a lot of sweat as well, to to be wrestling with the work of God and to understand as best they could this salvation. Wouldn't it have been cool to be Isaiah? To see God high and lifted up in his temple? Not a chance. Isaiah longed for our day. He longed for our day. We are a generation who have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are new covenant believers. And what the prophets had, we have also. And they searched and they inquired and they worked and they sweated and they wanted to know about this salvation. They, they, didn't, they didn't fully understand it. They, you know, this is why I had Patty read to us from Isaiah uh, 53 this morning, that glorious passage. Isaiah is on this amazing journey. He says, he talks about the servant being high and lifted up. Reference back to Isaiah 6. That the one who was lifted up in Isaiah 6 is the one who suffers in Isaiah 53. That Isaiah 6 talks about Isaiah being undone. Woe is me, I am undone. Paraphrased, I'm screwed. I'm dead. I'm lost. It's over. I've seen God. You don't see God and live. And what happens? There is there is the approaching seraph. The seraph approaches And the seraph is the protector of the holiness and the glory of God. And Isaiah knows this is it. I'm about to die. And he's got a burning coal in his hands. And you know what's going to happen. And then boom. Suddenly twist. The one that was going to bring judgment. Because Isaiah wasn't holy. Brings transforming holiness and makes him holy. How on earth does that happen? And that's Isaiah's journey. And in chapter 53 he tells us how it happens. It happens because... The one who is high and lifted up will be the one who is brought low. The one who is majestic is the one who will suffer for his people so that they can be made holy. I could get lost in Isaiah 53 right now. and I'm in turn there. But my point is simply this, that there is Isaiah revealing the glories of the gospel. But he didn't know it was going to be Jesus. He didn't know exactly when that was going to happen. He knew what was going to happen and knew how it was going to happen. He knew better than many Christians do, but that's a shame on us. But he knew stuff, but there was stuff he didn't know and he wanted to know. The Old Testament prophets longed to live in our day. Can you imagine how excited they would be to get an advanced copy of John's gospel? Oh, yes, yeah, so this is how it's going to work out and pan out. This is the transition. This is it. This is oh, wow. There was stuff they didn't know and they longed for it. And do you know who does have access to it? Us. We have the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ in us that they had. We have the salvation that they longed to see. The salvation they prophesied. And what we're going to do next time when we come back to this text is We're going to see that this scope just goes beyond that. The, the, what Peter is essentially saying here, he's saying this, this, this hope, this inheritance, this salvation, the prophets long to get it, to, to see it, to fully experience it. The angels look down upon it. We'll talk about that next time. I did not want to get distracted there today. But it's just this glorious thing. Do you understand just how wonderful, how magnificent our salvation is? And more so, do we understand that this is something that has been progressively revealed, like this painting with dots and dashes and things, and this glorious masterpiece of God's salvation, where Paul says in Ephesians that that, that God takes the church and he goes to all the principalities and powers. He goes to all of the spiritual realm, all of the, the demons and the angels, and all of the angelic realm, and he says, look. Look at my church. Do you get how clever I am now? Wisdom is the key word in that passage. That God was masterfully working out his masterpiece. He was putting it all together. And here we are living it. And we get distracted by trivial, unimportant Things, we get distracted by pain and suffering that we grieve over. We get distracted by our own sin. We just we just are so easily distracted. And here are the prophets longing to see the salvation that we have. And here we are treating it like dirt. Can you imagine if there was a million dollar bill and someone gave it to you and you had to go and take that cash and put it in the bank? I don't know about you, but you may have walked the journey from your house to the bank a hundred times. And you've never been attacked or mugged, but on that day you're going to be looking over your shoulder, and you just every every time there's a, a car brake, kind of you hear you hear brakes and the car stop, you're going to be panicking, and you, you 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 know you're just so conscious because you're aware that what you have is so precious, and you just have to you have to you know, the the danger of losing it. This isn't, it, and yet it's nothing. Gold, eventually, Peter told us in verse seven, will just fade away. And this salvation is just so much more precious. And we don't treat it as such. We'll be back here next time. We'll look at this in more detail. But I just simply want to end today with the last part of verse 11. Inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's your Isaiah 52. The sufferings of Christ and the glories were prophesied and they were predicted. He didn't know when, but they were. And let's, why don't we just end with that? I would like to, uh, I know Patty read it for us earlier, and um, I just don't think you can read it enough, can you? Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. As many were astonished at at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which is not being told, them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned... Each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth like a a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgressions of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days the will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. for the transgressors. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the salvation that the prophets saw, the suffering of Christ, and the glory that was to come. Lord, we now live in light of that. We now live knowing the time, looking back to the time, looking back to the person of Christ. We now see the masterful work that you have accomplished through the cross. Lord, may we walk in it. May we live in it. May we not be distracted, but may we understand the privileged position that we hold. May we not waste our lives, but may we live our lives for your glory, we pray. Amen.